So we're in 1 John, and we've been sort of hung up in chapter 2 for what, about the last two weeks? And we almost got through it last week, and I pulled up short, I think, at about verse 26. And to remind everybody, we're not sure who the addressees were, since there isn't any special salutation. And we're not completely sure who the author was. Most people say John, and I'm perfectly happy with that. I'm not trying to cast doubt on it, just that the letter doesn't say it. It reads like John, but as we're reading it, one of the things we said a couple times ago is Paul sort of had the Gentile franchise, and Peter and James had the Jewish franchise or the Hebrew franchise. It isn't real clear which one John has, if either, but he's clearly writing against somebody who has come through whoever the addressees are and is pitching a heresy. It isn't clear what the heresy is. Most people, and I agree with this, think that it has to do with who Yeshua was. And there are sort of three versions of who Yeshua was. One is he is fully God and fully man. And the Jews don't accept that because they don't believe that God can be a man. And that particular understanding of who Yeshua is smacks to them of all of the pagan religions around the Mediterranean with the legend of a God dying, going down to hell, being raised up into heaven. So the Orthodox Jews, this is just one more incarnation of that same heresy. Another one is that Yeshua was not really a man at all. You have in the Old Testament where angels just sort of show up and everybody around starts talking to them like they're people and it's only sort of about three quarters of the way through the conversation that they realize, oh shoot, this is not a man I'm talking to and they generally then go down like a sack of bricks and all sorts of stuff. So there's a heresy that says Yeshua was not a man, he was an angelic being in that mode. And then the third is that Yeshua was a man, but he was just a man who was anointed by the Holy Spirit and adopted by God, essentially. We have no idea which one of those things John is talking about, but he clearly believes that Yeshua is God, one with the Father and all that, which, as I say, is what I believe also. So now I want to get down to verse 26, because this is a place where lots of, especially Christians, get hung up. It's worth talking about a little longer than we had at the end of last time. So verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, which we've just talked about, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it was taught to you, abide in him. I haven't done it in years, but when I first started out in this, I was on an internet discussion board with a bunch of very devout, Bible-believing, knowledgeable Sunday Christians. They knew their Bible, they were devout believers, good folks, I mean, I'm not throwing the aspersions on them, but they would occasionally fetch up in this and say, you can't tell me anything because the Spirit tells me everything, and I need to know everything I need to know. And as I was teasing Tom a couple times ago, what they're doing is they're thinking like Greeks. And let's go back to John 
16. And by the way, one of the reasons that I think John wrote this letter, and I'm perfectly happy with that, is because John, in his gospel, talks the most about the Holy Spirit. Spends a lot of time talking about the Holy Spirit. So for John to be talking about the Spirit here is certainly very consistent with his gospel. So John 16, and I'll pick it up at verse 4 and a half. This is Yeshua speaking, by the way. Red letters in my Bible. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the rule of this world is judged. By the way, I just figured out the middle one today when I was reading that. That's always sort of puzzled me. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. But concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. Period. In other words, because he is going to the Father, because he is going to be raised from the dead, it is going to speak directly of his righteousness. And then, and you will no longer see me, is not why the world is convicted concerning righteousness. The fact that you will no longer see me is a side effect of him going to the Father. The thing that convicts concerning righteousness is the fact that he does go. This is the first time I've ever successfully unpacked that sentence. In other words, when the Holy Spirit comes in my place, what the Holy Spirit is going to do is witness that I have been raised from the dead and that I have ascended into heaven and I am with the Father. And because I am with the Father, that is direct evidence that I was righteous. And then concerning judgment, because the rule of the world is judged. Verse 12 now. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And I am suggesting to you here that whatever he hears, the person or persons that the Spirit is listening to are the Father and the Son. So the, the idea here is when the Spirit comes, he will be, in a sense, a spirit of prophecy who will tell you the things that the Father and the Son want you to hear. Verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the point is, back in 1 John, what 1 John is saying is the Spirit will guide you into truth. That doesn't mean that if you talk in tongues and all that kind of stuff, you are suddenly some kind of a Bible authority and without error, which a lot of people who think like Greeks, you know, all right, that's what it says. So I've got the Holy Spirit, talking tongues, all that kind of stuff. Nobody can teach me anything. And I'm suggesting to you that that's not correct. And if you did think it was correct, you wouldn't be sitting here. But it's, again, one of those things that as you talk with your Sunday brethren, understand that most of you have a slightly different mindset 
than most of them have. In other words, you've been studying Torah for a number of years, most of you. You're starting to, I hope, be able to put yourself to some extent into the perspective of the people to whom the Bible was written. And the Bible was not written to Greeks, most of it. So if you approach, especially somebody like John or Peter or James, like a Greek, I'm suggesting that you're probably going to go off into the weeds. Paul was a little bit better, but Paul has trouble writing. I'm obviously kidding, but as I've said many times before, Paul was a wonderful guy, but couldn't God have picked somebody who could write a better sentence? His sentences go on and on, and they're very hard to unpack. All right, so anyway, that's why I wanted to stop there and come back and lead with this this time, because it does require, I think, more discussion than what we were able to have given it last time. And what I am assuming is going on here, and again, we're saying that the purpose of the letter was somebody is coming along behind John and confusing the people who John is writing to about what the nature of Yeshua was. So, for example, as I led off with, if he's writing to Jews, for a Jew to come along behind him and say, yeah, this guy is the Messiah, but he is the Messiah in much the same way as the commander of the Lord's host was at Jericho, or any of the angelic beings that showed up in the Old Testament, to a Jew, that might be how he would unpack the Incarnation. We're not doing this, he's God business, but we can certainly accept that he is an angelic being who walked among us just like what happened in the Old Testament. And I'm not saying that's what the problem is, I'm saying that's a potential to be what the problem is. And what John is saying is, no, 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 no. I told you the truth. You know the truth. The Spirit should bear witness to you that what I am saying is true. That's what I get from that sentence. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now remember, just read you in John, that the Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because he has been accepted into the presence of the Father. So John here is saying, if you know that he is righteous, in other words, if the Spirit is convicting you that he has gone up into heaven as with God and is righteous, then you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We talked about that a couple of times ago. Our dear Sunday brethren will say that you don't want to have anything to do with that Old Testament law. That's been done away with and nailed to the cross in various rubrics. And what John says earlier in the letter is, if you are his, you will walk in the same way he walked. And I believe that Yeshua walked in Torah. He kept all the feasts, kept the Sabbath, did everything according to Torah. Now, what they will say is, then how come the Jews 
killed him. And of course the answer to that is he didn't follow oral Torah. He followed written Torah. He followed Moses. And he was always duking it out with the Pharisees. In fact, John 8, you got this running gun battle with the Pharisees where they're saying, you're not keeping the Torah. And he says, you guys have changed the Torah. So most of the Sunday church's attitude that the Torah is done away with is simply not correct. And John here, I think, argues directly against it. The Pharisees to the Jews are sort of like Paul to us. They believe their rabbis in the same way we believe Paul. And the rabbis have got a long written tradition, and Yeshua and Paul upended a bunch of that. Chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Remember, we just said back in reading in John that the world is going to get rid of him because they don't want him. Very consistent with the book of John. The light of the world came in, but the world loved darkness. All of this is very consistent with John's writing. Now, children of God, and this is from John, John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's also in Hebrews. The same idea, just said differently, is he was born of a woman, therefore he is our brother, therefore as he is our brother and he is the son of God, since he is our brother and he is the son of God, then we have the right to be children of God. Another way of saying the same thing. But again, this is very consistent with John's gospel. And he's saying that the reason that you're undergoing persecution is because you believe in him and the world didn't know him either. Verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. And this is very consistent with Revelation. In Revelation, John was sucked up into the overhead, and he hears this voice. And he turns around, and he sees this being dressed in white with a girdle of gold and face shining and so forth. And what I'm suggesting to you is that is a vision of who Yeshua really is. And what John is saying is we have no idea what we're going to look like in the resurrection, just as you all, because you didn't see it, I described it to you, but you have no idea what he looks like either because you haven't seen him yet. He hasn't come back. So that's what he's saying there. And this is all by way, obviously, of encouraging him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he's pure. And he's going to go into a riff here about sin. And I really like my translation as opposed to King Jimmy here because it'll say in King Jimmy, everyone who sins is not of him. My translation says everybody who continually sins makes a practice of sinning. And don't get me wrong, King Jimmy is perfectly fine. I'm not knocking the translation, but well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I just sinned. I, I, I looked at that woman lustfully. Now what am I going to do? A lot of the Sunday church, God bless them, A, starts with the Gospel of John, never goes into the Old Testament, gets all these things very confused. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
sin is lawlessness. I mean, I, I don't see how you can read John and get any idea that somehow the Torah is abrogated. You know that he appeared to take away sin. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I am assuming that the works of the devil are the destruction of humanity. What he did is he led us into temptation. Now, we trotted right along behind him. I don't know, I don't know that he had to try very hard. But in doing that, what he did is he screwed up God's plan, or at least he thought he did, and he condemned all of humanity to death because everybody now dies, which was not the case before that. So everything else that happens, evil sort of flows from that because Paul says that the power of sin is the fear of death. In other words, the thing that the devil holds over everybody and the thing that the world holds over us is the fear of death. You know, that's what governments use to keep us in line, you know, all sorts of things. And ultimately, if you don't do what I'm going to say, I'm going to kill you. So the fear of death becomes a potent weapon of control over humanity. And so I see that as a work of the devil in that the reason that we have a fear of death is because of the original eating their own fruit. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he one who does not love his brother. He's been talking about loving your brother up above, and now he's come back to that subject. And he's talking about relationships within the body. But the whole point of this whole rift has been that you need to be righteous. And your righteousness matters. And righteousness is measured by the Torah. It's really simple. Now, we were talking about responsibility in Musar a couple of times ago. And you remember that there are two origins to the word for responsibility. One is in time, which is to say you are responsible for the things that you do. Whatever you do, whatever the consequences are that flow from your action, you're responsible for it because you set that chain of events in motion. The other meaning of that is you are responsible to your brother to bear his burdens. And they have all sorts of things, you know, if you're, you see your enemy's donkey who has fallen into a ditch under a load, you will not ignore him. Even if he's your enemy, you will go help him get the donkey out. And what the rabbis say is if you want to have responsibility for your brother, study torts in the Torah. All of these seeming like nitpicking laws, which, you know, what do you do if you steal a sheep? What do you do if you see somebody's donkey fall? What do you do if your ox gores somebody? What do you, you know, all of those 
itty-bitty laws in the Torah make up the body of what it means to love your brother. Because if you treat your brother according to the Torah, you will do him no injury. So you remember John is a Kohen, John's a priest. The priest teaches Torah. And so what John is saying when he says, love your brother and be righteous, what he's doing is he's taking you back to Moses and he's saying, this is what it looks like when a righteous person loves his brother. They're all concrete actions or refraining from concrete actions. It's not some fuzzy emotion. It isn't saying that you're supposed to get all gooey-eyed about everybody in the church. What it's saying is God through Moses teaches you how to live together in a community without damaging each other. Do that. Be righteous. Love your brother. One of the things in the Torah is it's got all these laws and it's got a remedy for when you break them. So if you steal your neighbor's sheep, it says, all right, not only will you replace him, but you'll add 20%. If you defraud your neighbor, not only will you replace it, but you'll bring an offering. So for every transgression in the Torah, with some exceptions, there is a remedy. So the idea that the Torah expects you to be without fault is nonsense. There wouldn't be any need to provide a remedy if you were expected to be without fault. Now, there's an exception. The Torah doesn't provide a remedy for those sins that the punishment is stoning. Murder, adultery, blasphemy. The remedy for intentional sin is the blood of Yeshua. So. What Yeshua does by his sacrifice is he completes the table of remedies for all human sin. In other words, the Torah has a certain set of remedies for most of the sins that's listed, but it's got some that there's no remedy. You just stone the sucker and be done with it. What Yeshua sacrifice covers those sins, which is what makes it possible for someone who murders someone to repent before he's stoned or hanged or whatever, and still be able to come before God as righteous. Hence is why I like this keeps on sinning. The idea is if somebody lives in sin and wickedness and is unrepentant, then he's got a serious problem. But if someone sins, as we all do, recognizes his sin and either applies the remedy of the Torah, if appropriate, or applies the blood of Yeshua, if that's what's required, that his sin can be forgiven. The book of Hebrews talks about this extensively. And what the book of Hebrews says is Yeshua is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is not authorized to sacrifice in the tabernacle. That's not his venue. The sins that his blood covers are not the sins that are taken care of in the tabernacle and on earth. They're just not. You've got to fix those here. His sacrifice and his venue is in heaven, and he only takes care of the sins that are death penalty events in the Torah. What the Bible, New Testament, and Old Testament then does is it provides remedies for all of our sins. Everything is covered. So we're all the way down to verse 11, maybe? For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. 
And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. One of the things that we've said many times here is sin recruits and sin is jealous. So sin, when held up against righteousness, makes sin angry, which is what Cain was. The other thing that happens is sin loves company. So if you get someone who is off in some kind of a sin, they will recruit, which is, by the way, what the gay rights movement is all about, which is what the transgender movement is all about, which is what all of these deviant movements are about in our society. They are in sin, they are proud of their sin, and they are recruiting because recruiting others to be with them makes them feel less sinful because everybody's doing it. If everybody's doing it, it can't be so bad. That's politics. If you can get enough people to sin together with you, you have a political movement, and you can then change laws and do all sorts of things. The problem is we can't do that with God. But people think we should be able to. Hence, sin recruits. Verse 13, Do not be surprised, brother, the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. One of the things we said a couple of weeks ago, Paul in Colossians and certainly in Ephesians equates covetousness with idolatry. There are a lot of things in the Old Testament that the New Testament sort of expands and explains for us. So the idea that covetousness is idolatry, and of course idolatry is adultery to God, because God regards us as being in a marriage contract. Israel is betrothed. We are betrothed as members of the body of Christ. So if you put something between you and God, which is idolatry, then you are committing adultery to God. Paul then says, covetousness is idolatry, which is to say that you want something that God has given to somebody else, which is to say that you are not satisfied with what God has given you. What John is saying is something of the same sort here. Someone who hates his brother is guilty of murder. Because what is murder? Eliminating somebody that you don't want in your world. My world would be better off without her. So I'm going to eliminate her. That's murder. If I hate her, drive her away, drive her out of my company, drive her out of the fellowship, am I not doing the same thing to her? Am I not eliminating her from my world? So what I'm suggesting to you, John is saying here, is the same sort of chain of logic as what Paul uses when he equates covetousness with idolatry. He also says then that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, 
Let us not love in the word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this goes right back to Torah. What does the Torah say? Your brother is in need. You see that the year of release is coming up. You know that that deadbeat is not going to be able to repay you before debts are released. Torah says you shall lend to him anyway. So again, John is simply echoing Torah here. I very much enjoy my Calvinist blogger. Don't agree with everything he says, but he's a bright guy and really good. He's saying that he cannot imagine giving up his salvation for somebody. And he said, you know what? That is not Christ-like. That is not Moses-like. Because what did Moses say when God was about to wipe out Israel? If you're going to do that, blot me out of your book. So both Yeshua and Moses were willing, for the sake of their brothers, to give up their own salvation. I had never really thought of it that way until this guy said, I just can't imagine being in a position where I would give up my salvation for somebody else. And then he pulled himself up short and said, wait a minute, that's what Messiah did for us. And that's what Moses offered to do for Israel. And that's what Paul said he was willing to do for his brother Jews. It is a very sobering thought. Let us shine.